We're going to press on this morning uh, in the series we're doing in the book of Acts. And we've been, we've been in the book of Acts for a, a, a little while, as you know, if you've been with us. And uh, it's been a great blessing uh, to go through that. Um, I wanted to share with you, I, I didn't have it marked here, I should have marked this. Uh, well, I'll just tell you the story. So I, this is funny, sometimes whenever I'm talking to you all from Scripture, I get to the end and I go home and I'm like, oh, I said I was going to say that and then I didn't say that. And I, I'm sure none of you are like, you said plenty. I get that. But there was something that we talked about last week with, with Paul and um, Barnabas and their split over Mark. And I said, we're going to come back to that. And I just want to mention it because it doesn't get mentioned anymore. I told you that last week. It doesn't get mentioned anymore. And so I just want to come back to that just for a second this morning because I wanted to share with you uh, kind of a, a footnote or um, a, what is that called? A postlude, the end notes, right? The, what kind of seemed to have happened in that relationship. You remember that Paul was like, hey, Mark can't be trusted. He's not going with us. And, and Barnabas wanted to take him. And so they disagreed to the point that Barnabas and Paul split up over it, right? They broke up the band and they went different ways. And Paul went with Silas, we'll find that out today, and then Barnabas went with John Mark and, uh, and on his journey as well of faith. Well, in the book of Colossians, uh, let's see, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, this is a greeting to the church, and this is what Paul writes. He says, my fellow prisoner sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And so we know that ultimately there's a... There's there's evidence in Scripture that ultimately Paul and Mark were reconciled in some way. As a matter of fact, another place in Scripture, um, whenever uh, Paul writes, he says, uh, Mark is a blessing to me in my ministry. And in another place, he writes and says, he's a fellow co-worker in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a co-laborer in the, in the gospel work. And so what we realize from those things, and I just want to mention it to you because last we talked about kind of division in the church and stuff, but the reality is that we get what God's preserved for us in Scripture, but the reality is that reconciliation seems to have happened for the Apostle Paul and for John Mark. And so I just want to mention that to you. That was a kind of a, a big deal. Because we can act like they go their separate ways. They never, but no, no. It's same team Christianity, it seems. And in the end, they are, are reconciled. So just want to no mention that. Because I meant to mention it at the end last week and didn't get that done. But today, I wanted to ask a question as we get started. And then we're going to pray as we always do for God's wisdom and inspiration. And then we're going to talk through the scripture this morning. But I wonder, like, uh, how do you know God? And we talk about that a lot in life, and maybe with other people who, who think they know God, and we think we know God, but how do you truly know God? And, and maybe a, a follow-on question might be, if you, if you think you know God, how do you help someone else to know God? This becomes the most important journey of our life, that we are born in this earth, but that we might have the opportunity to come to know the God who made us. And that's actually the great proclamation of the scriptures, that we have a God we can come to know. So how, how do you do that in your life? We're going to talk about that today. I'm going to pray as we always do, and we're going to get into Acts 17 today. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your presence this morning with us in your house, the place to gather with your people and your name for your glory. Father God, the opportunity we have just right now, I mean, in this moment, if nothing else, we've already been able to come here and speak to you together as your believers, as those who believe in you and your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.
We pray, Father God, that as we come into this place, that we would cast our anxieties on you and that we might be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would have all wisdom and understanding, that we would have knowledge of the work and the things that you're doing among us, and that we might truly know you um, in a more deep way, in a, in, a, in a more meaningful way, in a more relational way, in a more day-to-day way. And Father, for... Uh, for, for the, the ways that we've been neglecting our relationship with you, I pray that you would forgive us and that we would repent of that. And I pray that as we move forward together that we might grow more um, closer to you all the time. You are so gracious to us. Uh, we do not deserve your favor nor your attention. And yet you say when we seek you out together in prayer, you're listening. That you're a God who loves to listen. So thank you for that, Father. Would you inspire the word today that we would understand it? Would you inspire our minds to receive it, our hearts to believe it, and in our lives to live it out? Would you help us to grapple deeply with the things that you've entrusted to our care in this life so that when we meet you, we know you? We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to turn to Acts 17 today. If you brought a Bible, you should be able to find that. If you did not bring one, you can grab one of ours off the chair row, and it's on page 772 in the book of Acts. 772 in our Bibles, not maybe in the Bible you brought from home, of course. And we're going to start just going through here from Acts 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. So the they here would be Paul, Silas, and you'll recall Timothy. They've picked up Timothy along the way, and uh, they're on this journey together. When they had come to Thessalonica, there was a Jewish synagogue there. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, examining are explaining and providing and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So we see the Apostle Paul continuing his journey of preaching the good news to the very ends of the earth, Right? But he has this thing, and it says, as was his custom, or as was his habit. And so we realize about the Apostle Paul, and indeed in our lives, if we're living it authentically for Christ, that it becomes a normative part of our experience that we would share Jesus with others, or at least have a burden to share Jesus with others. You know, there's a really interesting thing about sharing our faith that I found as I've uh, walked with you in my own faith life, and it's that we have two options, it seems. We have the option that we can actually share our faith, and then there's the option that we have a burden to share our faith. I know very few Christians who believe in Jesus Christ that don't feel some obligation or burden to share our faith with other people. And so we realize with the Apostle Paul is this was his habit that he would, when he would show up in a new place, he would go to the synagogue where there's already people gathering in the name of God, and he would begin to share the good news. I just thought that was an interesting starting place, that gospel sharing can be habitual. Not only that, but it should be normative in our life, what we do next, right? Like sometimes we, we think, well, I'll be back next Sunday for church and I'll think about what I'm going to do. But God's going to have you a whole bunch of places normatively in your life where maybe he would want you to share the gospel with someone. So, making God known, I guess you could say. 
So it says, as was his habit. But by way of encouragement, it says, and it's a really little footnote here, um, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures. On three Sabbath days. The, the way I, oh, did I push that already? The way I uh, say that is that um, evangelism takes time. All right. Now, let me debunk evangelism a little bit. We've talked about this before, but that's nothing but saying good news, right? I mean, I think we get a little weirded out, like, I'm not Billy Graham, I'm not an evangelist, I don't know how to do that. Let me just tell you something. If you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you are a bearer of good news in this world. You are. Like, things are different for you because you're believing in Christ. And so, therefore, we evangelize normatively. And so we have this uh, reality that, but evangelism takes time. And sometimes we get impatient. Sometimes we don't like God's timing in it, right? But it says that Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, right, he reasoned with them. Now the way I would read that is that, you know, Sabbath would happen sundown on Friday to sun. Uh, down on Saturday. That was a Sabbath day's rest. That's when you didn't work and you went to worship and you shalom, you greeted people and you would just hang out and honor God for who he is, right? And so that would mean to me that there was three consecutive weeks that he's already just coming and starting the gospel ministry in that area. Three weeks, it would seem to me. You'll notice in the book of Acts, there are times where it says he stayed there with them for X amount of time, uh, 10 months or a year and a half. I mean, just we read these notes and they come very quickly, but the reality is in, in the apostle's life, it's time, it's time. And sometimes we are, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but that we are, we are discouraged. We think it should happen faster, right? But the reality is that sharing the good news takes time. Sometimes we don't even understand that we are witnessing when we're witnessing. I should have, I should have brought something this morning to show you, but I, I will, I'll probably save it some other time. But let's just say there was an incident this last week where, where someone was watching me and I didn't know they were watching. It wasn't a good thing. <laughs> But don't, don't doubt that people are paying attention to you and your faith in Christ, right? Just your believing is a witness to other people. And a lot of times it takes time for that to soak in, for people to begin to actually grapple with the reality of it. As a matter of fact, I think there's a reality that takes some time just to believe it's authentic faith and not some kind of fast faith that will be gone in a, in, a, in a few months, like a fad or a few years, that there's an enduring nature of our faith. And Paul's habit was to go into synagogues, and on three Sabbath days, then he went and reasoned with them. The second thing I want to say, so, so that was the first thing, by the way. Um, here's the application. Too often we think there's one moment where God's going to use us to reach others, right? Uh, but the reality is it's a habit, and it's a, it's a lifestyle, some of you have known I've changed how I eat, and I, people say, oh, what diet are you on? I said, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle, right? Evangelism is a lifestyle. It's just how we are. It's who we're made to be and how we function in some way. We won't all do it the same, but we'll all be doing it. So don't doubt God's ability to use you as an effective witness in your faith, as your faith is authentic. As your faith is authentic in him, that's a witness. All right. Second thing it says, though, that when he went in, what was his habit? How did, he, how did he actually do it? And this is what the word said, that he, uh, he went in on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
He reasoned with them from the scriptures. So I've got some friends who love to um, talk to you about their faith, talk about the faith in Jesus Christ, and they would call themselves apologists, right? Um, I always thought it was a funny word, like you're apologizing for Jesus somehow or apologizing for the gospel. That's not what it means. And uh, someone I deeply respect had said, I will talk to anyone about, about philosophies as long as it's rooted in Scripture. You see, a lot of times we want to talk to people about faith without the Bible. But that's an unknown idea to, to the Apostle Paul. It, it seems that he would go in, and it, would, it says right there, and he would reason with them from the Scriptures and, and take note that it was from days and Sabbath where if that's the high and holiest thing that they do there is read the Word of God. If you've ever been to a Sabbath service, they honor God's Word, right? And so he would, he would um, reason with them or uh, dialogue with them from the scriptures. That's what the text actually says. He would, he would have a conversation back and forth from the scriptures. So this is what I would say. The word of God is powerful and effective. We don't have to invent a new thing to tell people or to talk to people about, right? I don't mean you should go out and quote verses at people, but I'm saying we're going to reason from the scriptures. We're going to get our instructions for how we live life from the scriptures, and then when we see things in life that happen, and they will be troubling at times and awesome at times, we're going to view that through a biblical context, a biblical lens. We're going to say, what, what does the Bible say about suffering? What does the Bible say about prayer? What does the Bible say about healing? What does the Bible say about hardship or, or joy or, um, you know, seasons of life? Because the Bible says stuff about all that. And so Paul would reason with them from the scriptures that they were studying together. Oh, I want to do a little, uh, a little side note here, by the way. So, so we don't want to reason people with worldly philosophy. That's all I'm trying to say there, right? You could just say reason with people, but that's not what he did. And we're going to see where he shows up and engages with a, uh, a different culture in a minute. But reasoning from scripture, here's a little aside. How do you know that a text is authoritative? I hear this all the time from people, like, well, the Bible is just an old book, right? It doesn't apply to me. And people who, are, who, are, who think they're far from Christ and who believe they're far from Christ say, that's not true for me. That's just a dusty old book called the Bible. It's, it's not relevant, right? Or, on the other hand, other faiths will say, well, no, our text is authoritative. Our text, you have to follow our text. And it could be the Quran or it could be the Book of Mormon. There are several books out there that they would claim to be authoritative, now, this is, this is me talking to you, this little side. How do you know, how do you know a book is authoritative? Some people started reading books that are like written with not that intended purpose. I remember that whole thing happened with the shack, right? The shack was written as a, by a guy for his kids as a bedtime story, as an allegory. And people started like living their lives, oh my gosh, it's like it's the scriptures. It's not. It's not. That's why it causes a lot of problems. How do you know? This is how you know. You read it, and it has authority, or it, has, uh, it, it works, like in a fundamental, real-life way. You don't have to pretend for God that it's going to work. Like the scriptures have power in themselves. I don't know if that makes sense to you. See, I was one of those people who said it was just a dusty old book. That's probably why I'm so bent about this issue. But when I read the Word of God for myself, it's living and active. 
perspective and it cut me deep and it's not like any other book. And why would I say this to you? Because when I say we reason from scriptures, I mean, I mean the Bible, right? I mean the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's where we get our reasoning from. We can think, but we think within the scriptural context. Why would I say that? Because I've had people say, well, you haven't read the Book of Mormon yet. That's why you don't understand. So you know what I've done? I've read the Book of Mormon. Maybe I have time on my hands. I don't know. But I take it seriously. If there's another book out there that's authoritative that God has inspired. I ought to know about it, read it, and believe it. And I read it for a while, and they came back, and I had them in my house, and I said, this isn't authoritative. There's just no power in it. Does that make sense? There's no power in it. There's power in the Word of God. And you ought, to, you ought to just be able to discern that. So it's not just any old book. The Quran, right? I had read the Quran. I sat before an imam, right? It's not, we weren't supposed to argue with them, but I said it's not authoritative. There's no power in it. Because when you sense that, when you taste the scriptures, the living God, there's, you will not take a substitute. And you won't read, you know, a, another book and, and go, oh, this is the God. You go, that's not the gospel. That's not power. This is power. By the way, the imam said, you didn't read it in the original language. That's why it's not powerful for you. <laughs> so just learn the language, then you read it, then it'll have power. I haven't done that yet. So we reason from Scripture. This is what Paul did. It says he showed up there and he, for three weeks, as was his custom, he reasoned with them from Scripture. And look, and he explained and proved that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. So his agenda with them is very clear when he reasoned from Scripture that there is a requirement for holiness that you can't meet, that there is a sacrifice required that needs death, that there is a reality that blood must be shed in your blood and the blood of the goats is not enough or the blood of the lambs. And so you need a true sacrifice. And he reasoned from Scripture and get this, that um, Christ had to suffer and then had to rise from the dead. Had to be dead. It was a God-sized problem that only God could solve. And so he, he, he identified that as the problem and then he, you know, reasoned with him in that way. It's not unreasonable. He says, this is in quotes, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Right? That's his point. This, I'm not preaching just another thing. He's the one. Now, you might say, in fairness, well, he's speaking at a synagogue, so they're looking for Messiah. So this would make sense in the Jewish context, right? We're going to talk about that later, but let's move on for now. So he does this. This is the one who's the Messiah. And then this is what the word says in verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined uh, Paul and Silas. The word persuaded there actually is obedient in the Greek. It's some of the Jews were obedient to what God was teaching them. That's what it's basically saying. That they, they didn't respond because Paul was there and being a part because the God, I would say the Holy Spirit, was teaching them and they were obedient and responded to the faith. Some Jews did that and joined Paul and Silas. Listen to this though. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks Right? So they, they weren't Jewish, but they, were, they knew God was God, and they, they believed as well. And I love this line, not a few prominent women. <laughs> not a few. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> That's what it's saying, right? A bunch of women of stature came to faith. You remember last week we talked about Lydia, right? A woman of stature, of, of ability. And here the same thing. So you have three 
groups, the Jews, the Gentiles, and women. And by the way, um, the Gentiles, women traditionally would have very, they would not be included in the things of God. Let's just say that. Can we say that for a minute? But in this case, they were. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some of the bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and uh, Silas in order to bring them out of the, into the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city councils, uh, city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Whew. And Jason was welcomed in, has welcomed them into his home. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, this one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. There's a little bit we want to talk about here, right? The first thing is this. I want you to see something. When the gospel comes to town, everything is upside down. That's not supposed to rhyme, by the way. That was just an accident. <laughs> Well, that's reality, you know. The word there says, it says, it says, these men have caused trouble all over the world. Now they've come here. Um, it actually means that, that all the known structured society, all the normal people were doing just fine, and they came with the gospel, and the word actually means that it turned everything upside down. It means to stand on your head, literally. They're standing everything on its head. That's the uproar. That's the, that's the uproar. You remember, and this is, this, but this is funny because it, it originates in a religious circle. They're turning the religion on its head, but then they're turning all the city on its head and all the politics on its head. They get some crowds together. They go, this is not going to be bad for us, man. Things are not going to go well. And, and they say that everything is turned on its head. Now I want to say something, and we're going to get off the weeds here in a minute, but this is it. Jesus is political. Jesus is political. I believe this. I absolutely believe that Jesus is political, but I want to explain how I believe Jesus is political. Because he will challenge every authority structure in your life. He will challenge every presupposition about who you think is in charge and what you think matters. If you read the gospel of Jesus and you understand his life and the way he lived, he's going to force us, all of us, to go inside out, which is probably why I had a bad week this week. Because he forced me inside out, and the stuff inside was ugly. He, he's political in the sense of... of, of, of um, his demand for uh, his right power. That's how I read that, by the way, political. And see, here's the problem. Here's the problem I want to say real quick. So, as an aside, but too often we get taught, you could take Jesus' political and you would, our whole lives we spent in politics. We just spent our whole lives in politics, arguing with each other. You know, candidates, positions, whatever else, you know, uh, what are they called? Uh, I want to... I almost said denominations, but you know, I don't know. but you know, like um, parties, party affiliation, you know, all these. We'll spend our whole lives fighting each other with that stuff, but then saying Jesus is on our side. And here's what I think: He's above all that stuff. He's above all that stuff. And, and the reason that I say this is because with you and I, we are, we are blessed to live in the United States of America, and other people are blessed to live in the country they live in, and we all have the systems that God has placed us into for a purpose. And by the way, some of our people have left our system and gone to other places to serve the gospel and missionary fields where they serve under other, under, under other kings and other authorities and other um, structures that aren't like ours, right? 
And we are called to respect those things, but we must understand is that fundamentally Jesus is above all those things. I mean, we prayed, we prayed a prayer, we sang a song this morning that said, you know, all the stars and all the, and all the universe. That's big. But he's on our side. <laughs> what? So some perspective. Jesus is political, but he's political in fact. He says, you, you, sub, you lay your power at my feet. Don't cash in your chips for this party, that party, this candidate, that candidate. No. Cash in your chips for Jesus. He's the one. I say that because sometimes churches rightly get a bad rap for picking on people because of politics. It's stupid. It's stupid to do that. Because it, it, it doesn't help us further the gospel message. And I'm not saying that there's not something you should care about. You're allowed to care about things. But I'm saying ultimately the things you care about most is Jesus Christ. The things that we cling most to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when Paul would come to town and start preaching the gospel, it was trouble for everybody, including people in charge. It was trouble. We ought not be afraid of that. Here's another way you could say it, though. Because lest you think, well, that's unnecessary tangent, and now we're in the weeds on politics. Listen, Jesus is king. Do you see what the accusation is there? Do you see what the accusation is there in the text? He's going against Caesar's decrees. Verse 7, they are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And matter of fact, in the Greek, it's not how it reads. It says, they are believing in another king, this one called Jesus. They're not believing in Caesar anymore. They're believing in Jesus, the supposed king. I can't get off on that right now, but you know what I'm saying. Yes, Jesus is king. That means someone that we serve under a, a political authority. Someone who's going to tell us what to pick up and what to lie down, where to go and when, you know, when to do things and how to do them. And we ought to recognize that and submit ourselves to him and his purpose. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials uh, were thrown into great turmoil. And they made Jason and the others postpone and go. Now here we go. So they're going to skedaddle. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away at, to Berea. By the way, I wonder how many times Paul had to leave town in the dark. Seems like a lot, right? Going through baskets and windows, going out in the dark, like just get out of here. They're going to kill you. On arriving there in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. There it is again, the habit that they had. But now look at verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, and they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I want to mention something here. This is a great little passage of scripture that elevates something we ought to have elevated in life, and that's this. We ought to know what the Bible says. We ought to know what the Bible says. Not so you can Bible quiz with people. Not so that. Not so you can quote chapter and verse and impress your Christian friends or scare your non-Christian friends. <laughs> it's not what we're trying to do. So that you know the truth. I want you to see what, what they said there whenever they got to Berea. They're of more noble character. By the way, as a side note, I couldn't help but notice that when I was looking at this, the root word there is eugenics, and it means of a noble birth or of a better birth. And that, that idea, I think, has been twisted to, um, to be very harmful. But what, what they're saying is there's some traits of someone who is of a better standing, and this is what it lists out as, right? So if we want to be someone who is of a more noble birth, we can follow the Brian way. Look at what it says. Because what? They received the message with great eagerness. That's the first thing. They were excited to learn more about God. Always. Right? And that can be true, by the way. It's not just excited about, they were excited about more about God. Yeah, 
someone comes to your door, I can teach about Jesus. Awesome, teach me about Jesus, right? So when they have the conversation, they're excited about that, first thing. And then the second thing is, they examine the scriptures. So they're eager to hear new things, and then they're, then they're going to examine what's being taught based on the scripture. And so they go, and they, the guy comes, Paul, the apostle Paul comes, teach them things, and they go home, and they roll out their scrolls. They didn't have Bibles like this, a little more. And they would read, and they would think it through. And they would say, does that line up? Is that right? And they were considered people of more noble character. But the last thing I want to say is this. Why? So that they might know what's being taught is true. That's why. Not people who are washed back and forth by every whipping of the wind, right? But people who say, that can't be true because the scriptures don't say that. Or, that's absolutely true. The scriptures say that. And that means that as Berean-type Christians, when we begin to follow Jesus, we can sit with people and study the Bible and go, wow, I didn't know that. You're right. Or, no, that's not what that says at all. And this is a gift that God has given us in his word that we can know truth. So they are considered more noble, both, more noble birth because they were willing to examine scriptures. All right, verse 12. Many of the Jews believed, who oh, that sounds familiar, as did a number of prominent Greek women. That sounds familiar. And Greek men. So here we go again with prominent women and Greeks and Jews believing the good news. There's a pattern. Verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, now those are the dudes he left behind, remember, the, the Jews who were not happy, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up along the way. And so this is the next thing I want to say to you, which is this. If you're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are trying as a church family here, I hope you're trying in your life, not in, again, just in the, the ways that God, there's going to be opposition. And I think that, uh, I think opposition's, wait, I don't have one in there? Wait, I'm going to find it. Yeah, all right, well, we're all, all right. So opposition can follow you in your life, right? Like, it is hard, and things do keep going wrong, and things aren't exactly like we would hope, and, and yet we are allowed to continue to share the gospel. And so the truth is, and I just wanted to get the mental image of what's happening, Paul sneaks out of town, goes down to Berea, and starts preaching the good news there, and as soon as the adversaries hear he's down there, they pack up their junk, because they don't really care about Thessalonica. They only care about opposing Paul. They only care about opposing the gospel. They pack up their junk and they head down. They go to Bria and they start to oppose him down there. You know what it reminds me of? I was watching news recently. And there was a group on one side of the street. And they were having a, a, a rally march thing down the street, right? And they're there because they had some convictions they wanted to talk about. So they're going to talk about their convictions out in public, down the street, right? And then in the middle, actually it was on like two streets or the sidewalks. And in the middle was this police line because on the other side there were people who were there and the reason they're there is just to oppose the people on the other side of the street. Why are you here? Because we don't like them. And that's what you have happening here with the gospel being shared. That you might find in your life there are people who are going to chase you around and, and, and kind of kneel you and complain or, or just kind of, you know, at your heels because they don't like what you're doing. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul and Berea. I just thought it was such a striking image that if your opponent wasn't there, you wouldn't be there at all. Isn't that funny? Like, there was no concern for Berea until the gospel was being preached in Berea. Now we're concerned about Berea. And so you have these images played out even today in our lives where people just show up just to oppose one another, just to disagree, just to be on the other side. 
Just to scream at each other. And that's what's happening here. They're going down there because they hear that the gospel, listen, what's to say? No, they hear that the word of God is being preached. That's the trigger. The word of God is being preached in Berea, and that's too much for them to stand. And that is a funny thing to hear, given the fact that these are Jewish people coming down from Thessalonica. They went there agitating them up. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul then to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So now we have Paul isolated in his ministry, it seems. I don't know if he was totally alone, because the Bible doesn't say necessarily how many people he had supporting him. But we know that Silas and Timothy are with him in this. And so they are... Um, they are off in other things, and Paul is alone. Now, this is interesting, actually, though. So we're going we're to end here in Athens. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I love a couple things here. That even while Paul's off, right? I mean, he's just going to hang out in Athens. He's still watching. He's still looking. The word says beholding. He's beholding the city, and he, he beholds that it's full of idols, Right? he realizes that the city of Athens is full of idols. And so in verse 17, he does what he always does. Here it is again, his habit. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, to those who happen to be there, or the word says, in conversations with them, right? And so you have Paul here sharing the gospel in a couple of key places. He shares in the synagogue, as we see him do before, Right? So you can share the gospel in church. Matter of fact, let's just say for a minute, somebody here this morning might need to hear the gospel from you. Right? That could be a thing. That someone here, or that I may hear the gospel from you. That in my life, I preach the gospel, but then I maybe forget to apply it to myself. I remember I heard a story this week about some, a pastor who said he preached a sermon, and after the sermon, somebody came up to me and said, you know the same thing applies to you, right? He's like, that's so dumb that I have to be told that. But I know that, but I forget. Yeah, the gospel is for me too. This grace of God is for me too. And so he would go into synagogues and he would preach there that they would believe. And then he would preach in the marketplaces, uh, in the marketplace. And then he would preach in these conversations. He would teach in these conversations that were being had in these places. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers then began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating a, uh, a foreign a god, a different god, right? An un, that's, the word there is unknown. He seems to be advocating for an unknown god. Um, they say this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So that's what he starts to do on his own. He's preaching the good news there. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aragopius, Aragopius, we're going to go with that, and where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean, right? And so here's a couple of things to think about. So Paul's in a city called Athens. It's full of idols, and they're interested in hearing what Paul's teaching about. I think it would be hard on them here and say, like, they're going, oh, this is a strange thing in a foreign god, but they're like, hey, let's Let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about what, what, what you have to say. As a matter of fact, in verse 21, it says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this is their wheelhouse. Wow, this is a fascinating new thing you're telling us about. Would you tell us about it, please? They were excited to hear Paul uh, share, share what he, I wouldn't say the good news, but share um, what he knew. And so what we realize then is, as he's walking around, says, 
Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopas and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Uh, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. And so the first thing I think is really helpful when we think about sharing our faith is this. And I got to get my slides back in order because I'm sure they're way whacked now. Mr. Burns, can you help me with that? Sorry. Um, that, uh, we'll get that. Everyone worships something. There you go. Thank you, Mr. Burns. Everyone worships something, right? And he identifies that, that they worship something. I'll tell you one of the most uh, unfair conversation methodologies I see happen with folks who are believing, and it's this. Don't come tell me about your religion. But you know what I've been up to? Right? I don't come in here preaching about, you know, Jesus, um, but I read this book, and you got to read it. Right? It's dishonest engagement, you know? Everyone believes something. Everyone in our, and all of us believe something in our lives to be true, and it's how we're functioning in our life in a practical way. We're living it out. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, and what we ultimately believe to be true are, are fundamental to our experience. And this gets me really excited because... All of a sudden, it takes the power out of, well, I'm the believer and they're the non-believer. No, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe in something else, right? And so when we go and we have a conversation, part of it, and I just want to say for a minute, I love this, part of it saying that with someone who doesn't believe in Jesus is to unpack the things that they do believe, that they may not even know they believe, right? Because they believe some things. Everyone, everyone believes something. And they're giving their lives for it. And then the question that we ask at the end of the day is this, is it worth it? Is the thing that you're giving your life for worth it? When you have someone that's like completely sold to their career, my career is the only thing that matters in my life. I'm going I'm to make everything about my career. You know, or we talk about politics. Politics, everything in my life is about politics. Is it worth it in the end? Or my kids, my whole life's about my kids. Is it worth it? Whatever it is. The question then becomes, is it ultimately the most valuable thing? Is it ultimately true is a very important question because if it's not true, it's all for nothing. But everyone believes in something, and Paul does this brilliant thing. So he does. He says, yeah, I've seen your great city. You're very religious people. You're believing a bunch of stuff. And I saw this one thing, and it was a, an altar to the unknown God. I'm in verse 23 now. Now what you worship as something unknown I'll proclaim to you, right? And that's a subtle thing, but I love it. I, I'm not sure where the slides are, Eli. So can you push me? It says, we proclaim a known God. A known God, right? The known God. Like, we proclaim the known God. Not a God that's mysterious to you. Not a God you've never heard of or seen before in your life. We proclaim a God you already know. You already know. And, and uh, they were worshiping in ignorance, is what he said. And I'm going to proclaim to you the ignorance you've been worshiping. And then look at what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. That's his first proclamation. The God you know. You see all this stuff? He's the God that made all this stuff, right? You see all the technology? He's the God that made all the technology. He made us, gave us a billion to use all the all the things you're surrounded with. This is the God we're talking about. He's the Lord of the heavens and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else that we have. He's the God that's letting you breathe right now. He's the God that's being graceful to you right now. He's the God that knew you in your mother's womb and knit you together and knew the number of your days and the number of hairs on your head. He's the God that knows you. That's the God that we proclaim. Verse 26, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they would live. That's the God. You're here because of this God. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps even reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far, oh, come on, from each one of us. Not far. That's the God we proclaim. Man, you don't know my story. I'm a mess. My life's a mess. I've been through so much stuff and all this. And God don't want nothing to do with it. He's so close to you. That's the God we proclaim. He's so close to you right now. Man, I, I, I've been hurting so long and God's so been so absent and I don't, I don't know if I'd even know. Man, he's been there the whole time. Been with you the whole time. That's the God we proclaim, the God that suffers with us, the God that knows us, though he is not far from each one of us, that we might reach out and believe. Look, 28, for in him we have life and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his children, his offspring. We belong to him. Paul's doing a great job of evangelism. We, we can parse this all out and say, oh, look, he's using the, but listen, he's saying, you, this isn't a strange God. You know, you know how you, you know how you screw up. You know how you don't ever feel like things are right. You know that. You know there's a God that made you and loves you like you are. Doesn't need you to do anything for him to make him happy. Don't have to ritualize, right? He just loves you. A God that's holy, you know, that, that requires sacrifice, but you can't pay it anyway. Not a cheap God. A holy God. See, that's the God that we proclaim. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or any image made by man's design and skill. That's an inversion of the gospel, by the way. God made in man's image, not man made in God's image. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands that all people everywhere should repent. Stop that foolishness. We don't make up the gods. You know what the, one of the biggest things that people say, well, the Bible's just written by men. It's, it, we just made up, we invented God. That's exactly, exactly what Paul's talking about here. We should repent of that kind of an attitude. We just, God of the cracks, God of the, you know, the, the, the things that we couldn't explain. God, you know, we didn't understand this or that. We, we said, oh, it's God, but now we know better, right? We're outgrowing God. That's not the truth. We are made in his image. He made everything, and we are his. We ultimately belong to him. And so we should repent of that kind of foolishness. Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he will give proof to this to all men by raising that one from the dead. That's Jesus Christ, right? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. <laughs> Back to life after death. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. 
among, among them was Dionysius, a member of the Aragopas, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So some believed, but not all believed. I just want to, I just want to encourage you, first of all, if you don't know the God that knows you, like, can we just believe that? You know, you, you and I have a tendency to think, well, no one really understands how we are. No one knows us inside and out. But that's antithetical to the gospel. The truth is the gospel says he knows us inside and out. Now, there's this really weird thing we do where we say, there's, like, we have this view of God of like, oh, he's looking like, I'm going to strike him down. That's not, he loves us. He's the perfect father. He's right, you know? And so even when we are being disciplined and it's hard and it feels painful, it's for our good. But we ought to know the God who's with us, right? And then when we proclaim him, we ought to proclaim the God that's near Pray with me if you would. Father God, I just thank you so much for the fact that you are near us. That in our wandering and in our, our lostness and in our hopeless estate, you are the God that reaches in to save us. And Father, I don't know the stories of every person here this morning. I pray that it's a story of your redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that if it's not, you be our teacher, that no one would talk us into this, but that you would convince us right now in our spirit that you are at work and that you are sovereign and you are God. May we have the courage then to accept and repent, believe good news, and turn to you. And Father, for, uh, for the spirit that you've got in us, that, and we make it about us, we get all fleshly about our witness, what we're doing, and people that we love, as if we love more than you do. Father God, I, I pray that that would be rebuked in us right now, and that we would recognize that we are all loved by you that you are the one who is reaching out to save. You are the one that has the ability and the desire. And, uh, and Father, that we can just live in you in that way. Father, I pray that we have a powerful witness, a powerful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our families, our homes, our neighborhoods, our community, our churches, our missions. That even when we show up, we don't know. We don't even know why we're there. Somehow, by your grace, we're bearing witness to the gospel of a God who won't quit. A God who can be trusted at all times. Father, we thank you so much for the way that you will use us in this life. We're eager to see you face to face and know you in that way. May you be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.